Hello, everyone. Welcome back to an episode of Just Say Gway. I'm your host, George Gway. Today I'm joined by Tim Donahue. You've seen him in Netflix's special operation, Flagrant Foul. He's a former NBA referee. Tim, thanks for on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, so how's this been? You know, Netflix released uh, the documentary. Uh, you're watching the NBA change a lot today. Uh, what's this all been like? You know, it's uh, it's been since I got out of jail in 2009. Everything's been a great experience for me uh, with everything that I went through, everything that I did. Uh, you know, I've been very fortunate to be able to rebuild my life and, uh, you know, take care of my four daughters, which was my biggest worry when I got into trouble and uh, ended up doing 15 months in federal prison. So, uh, you know, things have been terrific. I always tell everybody, if you would have told me back in 2000. 7, 2008, 2009, that I'd be in the position I am today, I would have told you that you're crazy. So, you know, I'm very fortunate uh, to have gotten through it. Yeah, that's great. Like you said, still being able to be a part uh, with your daughters and being able to do the things like that. That's that's good. So uh, I just want to talk about in terms of your story, let's backtrack. You know, where did your passion for the game of basketball start? Because for someone to become an NBA referee, they have to have a passion for the game to start. No doubt. I mean, ever since I was little, I love to play basketball. I was playing all the time, uh, every chance I could get. And my father was a top college basketball official, did the final four for three straight years. I would travel with him to games and, uh, you know, be able to go and watch ACC games, big five games, and, uh, you know, sit right underneath the basket and uh, just have a front row seat to top college basketball. And, uh, you know, just – was a, a love that I had from early on. And, you know, when you get to a point where you know you're not going to progress playing, you try to think of another route that you can take in order to stay a part of the game. And uh, I thought that refereeing was something that, uh, you know, was in my family with my father and my uncle, who was a top NBA referee, Billy Oaks. And, uh, you know, I was, I was fortunate to have them to mentor me and, uh, you know, put me on the path that I needed to be on to make it to the NBA. Yeah, you got to have that good path. And it's really interesting, like you said, there was you know, things within your family that kind of led to that. And, you know, obviously having the passion of going to games, that's what led to it. What I was amazed that I saw in the Netflix special was where you're from and what refereeing means to that area. Could you just talk about where you're from and just how it seems like becoming a ref is such a normal thing there? Yeah, I'm from Delaware County, Pennsylvania, and we have a long list of people that were uh, from that area, maybe not Delaware County, but right in that Delaware County, Montgomery County area that made it to big time sports officiating, whether, you know, you go all the way back to Earl Strom, Eddie Middleton, Joe Crawford, you know, Billy Oaks, Steve Javi, uh, Callahan, Wonderlick, Washington. I mean, the list goes on and on. And, you know, even top college referees and my father, Hank Nichols, Joe DeMeo, Bobby Donato, uh, just a long list of very successful uh, referees from that area. Yeah, that was really interesting. I think the thing that stuck out to me the most is just you see so many towns that might have a few people, but it seems like that was definitely such a big thing for the area. So what was it like just in terms of the time that you repped? You know, you were at the time where you guys saw you ref players up close. You know, you mentioned that front row seat, but you have a closer front row seat to guys like Michael Jordan, Tim Duncan. Kobe Bryant, you know, LeBron James as he was really coming into the league. What was it like just to be a part of, you know, that time in the NBA? Uh, actually, my first preseason game was the Chicago Bulls uh, playing the Seattle 
um, Supersonics, and I refereed with Joe Crawford and David Jones. And I remember, uh, you know, Jordan playing in that game and at halftime saying something to Crawford like, wow, this guy's just unbelievable. And, you know, in a joking manner, Crawford said to me, you know, yeah, why don't you, you know, stop watching him and help me officiate this game. So, you know, seeing a lot of these guys up close and personal is is something where you, you see the greatest athletes in the world. And, uh, you know, as you mature and, and you get some games under your belt, you start to, uh, you know, shy away from being in awe and, and kind of just concentrate on doing what you're there to do, and that's to officiate the game. Definitely. You know, like you said, you saw some of those legends and the greatest athletes in the world in their prime. I mean, what's it like to see a guy like LeBron's journey? Because at the time, it's like the definitive answer for the greatest player ever is Michael Jordan. But, you know, what he's doing today, it's like, you know, he's making a case and you got to see really the, the development of that. No, no doubt about it. I mean, LeBron just uh, was one of those guys that seemed to be bigger, stronger and quicker than everybody else for some reason. Uh, and very powerful, kind of like a Shaquille O'Neal uh, was so over powerful when, you know, he was in the the post LeBron was a powerful guy that that did it up top and in the post. So uh, he's just one of those guys that was uh, head and shoulders above everybody else. And of course, all his stats and his wins and his points, uh, you know, have shown that. Yeah. And it's really incredible. You know, I'm 26 years old and the, the fact that it's still going on and he's playing an elite level, maybe he'll get another championship. Who knows? So like you said, you have such a big story that's told through the documentary uh, on Netflix, the special, but something that's really not talked about a lot is that you were part of one of the big games uh, of the 2000s with the Malice at the Palace uh, with Ron Artest and Ben Wallace and Rasheed Wallace. Just, you know, what was it like being a part of that? Because that's definitely another big moment in NBA history. Yeah, for sure. Scary. Uh, you know, you talk about officiating a game and it almost being over, not really a close game, uh, just going through the motions of, uh, you know, getting through it. And, you know, shooting a foul shot and all of a sudden, uh, you know, two guys start to shove each other and it spills over into the stands. And, you know, when the fans start getting involved with the players and things are flying all over the place and you keep thinking it's going to stop at some point, it just continues to go on and on and on to the point where I don't think we were able to play the last 40 seconds of the game. So it was uh, just chaos that, uh, you know, you never – hope to be a part of and you saw things that you didn't think you'd ever see uh you know there was a heavy set mexican kid that came running onto the floor and jermaine o'neal wound up and punched him and if it wasn't for the floor being so wet and jermaine losing his back foot you know that kid would be dead because he hit him square in the jaw and he went down and you know i thought he was never going to get back up but you know they were able to get him off the floor so just, you know, seeing a lot of these big, powerful players fighting with the fans. And, you know, I, I always wondered, you know, what would make some of these fans think that they could get into a fistfight with some of these big seven-foot professional athletes and, and hold their own? It's kind of comical. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, that's the thing. You see, like, a sport in hockey and their fans, others fighting within the game, and people say, oh, why can't they let basketball players fight on the court like that? And just, like you said, it's the – it's the chaos that can come with it. You know, you saw that firsthand. That's, you know, why they can't do it. Did anything with you as a ref, uh, you know, carry over post-game? Because, you know, when the game ends, you know, you still got to go home and things like that. Did, did you have anything happen with, like, a player or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I write about it in my book, Personal Foul, at length about Rashid Wallace and being in Portland 
and, um, you know, giving him a technical foul and them winning by 30 points, him having 30 points, having one of his best games of, uh, you know, his season and him being so upset that I gave him that technical foul that he waited for me outside in the parking lot. And when I came walking out, he jumped out from behind a, a pylon and, you know, basically started giving me a bunch of grief and wanted to fight me. And, uh, you know, if it wasn't for Brevin Knight and a lot of security guards holding him back, you know, I'd probably still be eating through a straw today. Yeah, that's an incredible story. You know, I grew up watching Rasheed Wallace, <clears throat> you know, players like him on that team, Ben Wallace, you know, say Jermaine O'Neal. I don't think we'll see guys like that today. And uh, I, I think like that again, I think with, you know, the referees, maybe that's probably for the best. Uh, that's got to be one incredible story and definitely something that's so scary. So, you know, obviously just want to get into uh, what a lot of the Netflix special talked about, the betting and refing and, you know, that combination, those two things colliding. I was just wondering, you know, where did it really all begin? You know, basically when I uh, originally joined a country club and uh, started betting on golf and meeting a bunch of guys that enjoyed gambling, playing cards in the locker room, getting in a limo and going down to Atlantic City, um, I just started letting gambling consume, consume me. And, you know, unfortunately, I got in over my head and I started to gamble on uh, college and professional sports. And then eventually, uh, you know, the NBA and and then NBA games that I actually officiated. So just a slippery slope that, uh, you know, I went down and I crossed a line that I should have never been near. And, you know, unfortunately for me, it cost me, uh, a lot. It cost me my career, you know, my marriage and, um, you know, my freedom. So, um, you know, cautionary tale for everybody out there that if you are going to gamble, uh, you know, make sure that you're doing it in a responsible manner so that, you know, you stay in control and don't end up doing things that you shouldn't be doing. Yeah. You know, I definitely think that's great advice given you know, how popular you know, sports betting has become. And I appreciate you going to talk about it. So, one thing I found so interesting, you know, during that uh, Netflix special is just you're, what you're talking about in terms of, you know, what led to, you know, making the bets and just in terms of access to information, knowing that the refs were going to call certain things throughout the game. Like if Kobe Bryant was going to be called for more, you know, for contact, you know, pick the Lakers and things like that. Uh, referee meetings, knowing what to do and things like that. Could you just talk about, you know, what those meetings are like for the officials and just, uh, what you kind of know from things like that. Yeah, I mean, that one you just touched on uh, with Kobe Bryant is a, is a great example. Uh, there was a DVD that Phil Jackson had sent into the NBA office of 30 plays of Kobe Bryant going to the basket, getting fouled, and the referees not blowing the whistle. And him complaining to the league office. There, uh, people in the league office relayed that to the group supervisors. I had one of the first games uh, with Kobe after that DVD went into the NBA office and the group supervisor said, hey, listen, you know, make sure you keep a good eye when Kobe goes to the hall tonight. Uh, this was in a meeting uh, in the afternoon because, you know, Phil Jackson sent him this tape. He's going to the hall. He's getting hit and, and we're not calling it. We got to make sure that, you know, we don't miss these plays. So I left that meeting and I thought to myself, you know, he's going to go to the line probably 20 times tonight. The Lakers are going to win by 10. You know, the line in the paper is three or four. And I was taking that information and I was re relaying that back to a buddy of mine 
who was, uh, you know, placing bets. Yeah, I think it's interesting you bring that up just because we see so much. It still goes on today. You know, the Stars get a lot of the calls and they shoot more free throws. You know, we've seen some games where certain All-Stars teams will shoot like 20 or 25 more free throws than the other team. And it raises, you know, some concerns for fans. And uh, I was just wondering, what are your, what's your take? Because this was talked about in the special, just how a lot of fans today, they worry that uh, if they have to go on the road in a game seven, they're going to be worried that they might not get the calls from the refs or things like that. And I was a bit too young to remember. I think I was four or five years old for that Sacramento game versus the Lakers uh, that brought it to game seven and gave the Lakers another shot. But, you know, should fans be worried about that in terms of, you know, if their team's going on the road, they don't have LeBron James or Steph, that it might be hard to win that game seven. No doubt they should be worried because if you look at the percentages, uh, you know, game sevens are won by the home team, you know, over 70% of the time. So, uh, it's very hard to go on the road and win a game seven, you know, for whatever reason, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, the Lakers in a game seven where it's better for global attention for the NBA, for the Lakers being the NBA finals as it was with that, you know, situation with the Sacramento Kings and the Lakers, um, you know, for whatever reason, uh, the league likes, uh, you know, the bigger market teams to be in the finals. So, and advance in the playoffs. So it's difficult. And unfortunately for the, Kings, they had the best team in the in the league at that time. You know, I think it was in 2002, and they should have won that game six and went on and probably beaten New Jersey and had a ring on their finger. But unfortunately, Bavetta, uh, Bernhardt, and Delaney were officials in that game, and Dick Bavetta said he was the NBA's go-to guy. He was put on game sixes to push game sevens because that was what was good for the league. And, um, you know, the game was uh, – refereed uh, terribly, and yet those three referees still advanced and refereed in the NBA Finals and got an extra $30,000 bonus. So where can you perform your job and do a, a job that is rated as low as it possibly could get rated, yet you're still given a promotion uh, a week later and officiating the NBA Finals? So, you know, at the, at the very least, those guys should have been, uh, you know, knocked out of the playoffs and not moved on and gotten that extra bonus, but they were, and they were because that's what was good for the league to have the Lakers move on. And, you know, they did what the league wanted them to do. Yeah. You know, that's definitely interesting. That must've been frustrating as a ref at the time to see that those guys got promoted. I mean, why do you think it seems like that the NBA fans have those worries? Uh, I'm not saying in terms of what goes on at the meetings and things like that, but you just watch other sports. Like I know the NFL are really bad refs this year, just in terms of calling the game, but, you know, for an NHL fan like myself, I wouldn't have to worry about, you know, Connor McDavid getting other calls across the ice because, you know, refs don't call fouls in hockey. You know, they call penalties. But do you think that's something that could happen eventually, like that kind of star treatment? You know, sure. I think it's, uh, you know, what for the NBA it is, is it, you know, the star treatment, uh, you know, sell out the arenas and they sell jerseys and they sell sneakers. And, you know, it's all about the almighty dollar. And that's why now – uh, you know, you're seeing a lot of the approval and gambling in a lot of the states, and it's a situation where it's going to bring in more revenue uh, for the sports leagues. And eventually you're going to see kiosk machines in every NBA arena to where, you know, they're basically uh, taking bets on these games and, and bringing in more revenue that way. So uh, there's no doubt that, you know, it's going to continue to be star treatment in the NBA because it's a star-driven league, and it's what, you know, brings in the most money for them. So there's no doubt that that's going to continue.
Yeah, it for sure seems like it. And to hear from someone who's been involved in the NBA and how it works, it, it's just that's definitely interesting to see how it will play out. So my only question, more just about you know what went on with you specifically, was just you know how did it turn into a bigger project? You know, involved with a couple more people, but you know eventually it started out as something that you know you were doing by yourself. You know, just betting on the games, but you know how did it kind of grow into a bigger thing? You know what happened was is the guy that was placing the bets was placing them uh, with a guy who had ties to organized crime, and they were piggybacking off the bets. And then when me and this guy stopped doing it, I had a game in Philadelphia, and this guy named James Batista, who had uh, ties to the organized crime, the Gambino crime family in New York, had another guy uh, set up a meeting with me and picked me up and basically took me for a ride and said that he wanted to continue to get those picks. And if not, he was going to expose me for gambling or worse yet, have somebody visit my wife and kids in Florida. So I, you know, continue to give him the picks. And it was a situation where they were making millions and millions of dollars off of it. And he was such a drug addict and a, a pill head that, you know, he couldn't keep his mouth shut and it was heard over a Gambino wiretap. And that's how it was discovered by the FBI. Wow, that is really intense, and that is you know really awful that you know, family was brought into it, I and mean, that's that's just the worst case scenario and anything like that. So, you know, it all played out. You know, you you got caught for doing this, and you know you had to serve time for it. One thing I want to get into is just you know how challenging is it today to see that these sports leagues have you know had quote unquote marriages with you know betting companies. You see FanDuel on jerseys and ads, and you know you see a DraftKings sportsbook ad every single commercial. I think DraftKings is at every MLB stadium. I mean, how how tough is that? I know that your situation was uh, about a decade and a half ago, but, uh, you know, not too long down the road, it seems like it's everywhere now. You know, no doubt it is everywhere. And, and like we talked about earlier, it's a situation where it's bringing in revenue for the league. So, um, you know, that's what they need and that's what they want. So it's like almost like they sold their soul to the devil where they would never have touched that in the past. And, and now that they're all over it. So, you know, I think my situation kind of pushed it forward a little bit. You know, when David Stern didn't realize how, you know, much people gambled and, and started to do some research into it. Because I remember when he stood up at the press conference, he said in front of everybody that is an official, uh, legal gambling will cost you your job because we weren't allowed to place a bet of any kind, but illegal gambling will cost you your freedom. Then when he did some research, he found out that 58 out of 60 referees gambled and he couldn't fire everybody so that he kind of backtracked that. And, you know, I think after he started to do a little research and found out how much people gambled, not only referees, but players and other people, uh, it moved it forward a little bit quicker when it, uh, you know, talked about revenue and what it meant for the league. Yeah. And like you said, not only bringing in revenue to the, uh, the leagues, but to the states that legalize it, you know, we've seen that Massachusetts has become, you know, a very active state. You know, are you worried as a fan of sports that, uh, you know, with the players seeing these headlines now, just, you know, guys like Calvin Ridley, Shane Pinto, it seems like they're not really uh, betting on their teams, but, you know, like you said, before we know it, it could be that case. I mean, do those headlines kind of worry you as, as a sports fan? You know, I think we'd be naive to think that, um, you know, all this is going on and, they're betting on all these things and they're not betting on their own teams. I think, uh, you know, you can go back to Pete Rose and, you know, he was betting on, uh, you know, the major league baseball. And I think 
these football guys and these college guys, you know, no doubt are betting on their own teams. And I think the next big scandal is going to be one of these lower division one college athletes that isn't going to make it to the pros and is approached by somebody and, you know, says, you know, I'll put $50,000 in your pocket. Give me three games, three games that you're supposed to win by 15 points, just win by, you know, 10. And, uh, you know, that's the way we can do it. So you're not, you know, giving your team a loss, but uh, you're still putting the money in our pockets and we're going to put money in your pockets because you're never going to go pro. You're never going to get any money out of this. So why not take advantage of this now? And there's going to be people that are going to jump at that. Yeah, it's it's going to be really interesting down the stretch to see what happens, especially, you know, it seems like a few years ago, there's only a few states that were legalized in sports betting. But now the fact that with state borders and a lot more uh, states getting involved, who knows what could happen. So just want to talk a little basketball. Um, I know you're definitely still a big NBA fan, just uh, you know, watching basketball. But what do you think of how the league has gone in the direction just of how the sports played? I know that uh, when you were refing, the big man was definitely more valuable. Guys like Shaq and Dirk Duncan, they could pound the ball inside. Kevin Garnett. I watched the Boston Celtics, uh, you know, my team the other night. Uh, they put up <laughs> 58 threes and tried to outshoot the Golden State Warriors. Uh I just think it's getting a bit out of hand. And before we know, maybe some of the traditional centers aren't really going to be a part of the NBA anymore. I think you're already seeing that, that, uh, you know, they're getting away from that. And it's all about scoring for the league. Uh, they want a free flowing, you know, up and down fast paced game because they feel that that's what is exciting and that's, what's going to draw the fans in. So um, that's why you see a lot of the ticky tack fouls because they want a lot of freedom of movement. They want the players to be able to run up and down the floor without, you know, interruption. And you're never going to see that Detroit Pistons, you know, rough out basketball uh, that you saw in, in the 80s and 90s. It's something that's a thing of the past. They want this game to be, you know, uh, very free flowing and high scoring. They want those games, you know, 125, 123, because uh, that's what's going to keep everyone tuned into the TV and, you know, keep everybody in the building. For sure. And it's just amazing that one guy, I mean, probably two, Clay Thompson and Steph Curry, they, they really changed it. And uh, it seems like, you know, we're not going to go back to the way it once was. In terms of just the culture of the NBA, you know, what do you like about it or not like about it? You know, you grew up with, you know, watching guys like Bird and Magic. Uh, you saw, you rep Jordan, you rep Kobe. Uh, guys that really played their prime with one team. And I think LeBron changed that. Whether it was good for the bad or not, I don't really like it. But, you know, with the decision going to Miami and you got guys bouncing around, you know, with Harden, three teams in two years. It's just do you think this is not good for the league to have uh, all these all stars in multiple spots in multiple years? I think if it wasn't good for the league, they would stop it. Uh, you know, what's ever good for the league, they're going to, you know, allow to happen and they have the power to, you know, stop it immediately. And I think that they like these teams that, you know, quote unquote, superstar teams and you know, sell out away arenas uh, each and every night and, you know, garner that global attention. And that's what is what the league is always after. So, uh, you know, when you have three guys on a team and, you know, their their record is, uh, you know, 90% winning percentage, you know, it's a situation where uh, it's in the media a lot and it's garnering a lot of attention and, and the league uh, likes that. Yeah, you know, the league wants what's best for the league. You know, I got to admit personally, you know, I'm really against free agents moving constantly. But, you know, the Celtics got Porzingis, where they got Kyrie Irving, guys who moved around a lot. 
and it benefits your own team. I think a lot of people are like me. Well, they're okay with it when it happens and benefits their own team. But uh, Tim, thank you so much for doing this and uh, wishing you the best of uh, a good holiday season. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Have a good one.